Good morning. Thank you all for being here, even knowing that Peter wasn't going to be here. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Nick Missios. Um, my wife and I have been coming here for a few years now. I, uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm really grateful to you guys for welcoming me in, uh, welcoming my family in serving you guys in this way. Um, uh, if Peter and Jean were here, I would tell them the same thing. I hope they will listen. I'm sure they will. Um, uh, thank you for letting Angel and I serve you in this area, for opening up uh, this environment to us. Because um, you see me up here teaching, uh, but I'm not doing this in my free time because as a dad with a job and three kids, I don't have free time. So I just take time from the things I would normally be doing around the house, and I do this with it which means that my wife ends up doing more things around the house. Um, so she is carrying the extra workload of the service here. So this is a team effort between she and I. Um, and I just say that, so, and I want you guys to realize that's, that's true of Jean, that's true of Gina, that's true of um, every, every teacher you see up here who's, being, who's serving you in some way or in some other environment. Uh, there is someone who's helping him who's not getting nearly enough attention and gratitude. So if anything I do here serves you at all, make sure you thank my wife before you thank me. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Um, because she's the reason I'm able to prepare. She's also the reason that as, as the primary means the Holy Spirit has used to shape me into somebody who's even remotely worthy of teaching in anything, uh, it's because she has served me so well in being a means of God's grace and shaping me into the image of Christ. So, um, thank you. I'm, yeah, I'm going to get there, okay? All right. Uh, we're going to do a brief recap of where we've come so far, and then we're going to move into our verses for the, uh, for the week. Um, we've been talking about this three-legged stool approach uh, to evidence of faith or indicators of genuine faith. Who remembers what the three evidences are? Everybody remember? Anybody? The moral test. What's the moral test? Obedience. Do you obey God's law? Uh, The second one is kind of like it. What's the second one? The relational test. What is that? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Um, And then we're about to get to the third one, which is the doctrinal test, right? Um, I want to make a note here. You see here on on your notes, um, the three-legged stool, Peter used this analogy of the three-legged stool, and I think it's a good good analogy. Um, If you have a stool with two legs... Does that work? No. What happens? It falls over. Now, these legs are not fungible. What I mean by that is you can't swap them for one another. And you can't say, well, I, you know, if you, had a, if you want to have a stool that's a foot tall, and you said, all right, I only have two poles, but what I'm going to do, I need three total feet of leg length, so I'm going to take this one and make it twice as long. Does that work? No. Um, you can't swap out one leg for another. You can't say, well, um, you know, I may have some big, sin pro- solve, some big sin problems, but I've read Groom's Systematic Theology three times. Uh, you can't say, 
yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I know I might be a jerk sometimes, but, but I read my Bible every day. Um, you can't say, uh, I think we just need to love everybody the way they want to be loved and not really worry about truth or kind of doing the right thing. Uh, these things all are woven together, right? And we can't swap out one because I don't feel as comfortable with that one or I'm not as good at that one and I'm better at this stuff. Does that make sense, right? So these all are mutually inclusive. You need all of them. Um, one of the things I've enjoyed, I don't know if you guys have noticed this in, in reading John's writing, it, we've looked at, at, at John's style. Uh, it's very dense, uh, he writes, I, I program computers for a living. He, John writes like a programmer. He, he has this language where he, it's dense, it's tight, it's logical. There's no fluff. He has to make up his own words, right? We're going to get to one of those this time. He, he has these repeated words you see over and over again. Uh, children, right? He's, uh, all these like little children, right? That's like the beginning of a section. Light, life beginning, uh, truth, love, uh, liar. Uh, he's got these words he uses over and over again. And what he does, John will take a word and he will pack it with meaning, right? He'll tell you what it means either in this book, second or third John, or even in the gospel. And, and, and he'll, he'll fill them up with meaning. And then every time he uses that word, he expects you to unpack it again, right? So uh, it's like if I gave you an equation and said, you know, the, the volume of a sphere is four-thirds pi r cubed, I think it is. You don't want to say it over and over again, so you just say the volume, right? So it's the same idea here. I've got this thing, and it's going to stand in for this meaning I've got. So every time I use it, you need to understand what I'm talking about in, in that way. Um, I love these logical passages. Look at, at verses 18 and 19 that I have here. Um, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by this, we know it is the last hour. Do you see that, that kind of A, B, B, A structure, right? He does in the very next verse. They went out from us, for they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Does that make sense? So this, therefore this, because if this, then this. Lots of ifs and thens and becauses, right? So I want us to notice that as we actually get into reading our passage for today. Um, and let's go ahead and do that. So look with me. Remember, we're skipping 15 through 17 because Peter really wanted to do those. Um, so we're going to start in 18, and we're going to read through verse 23 today. And then next week, we're going to do 24 through 27, 8. I'm not really sure where I'm going to cut that off. I don't love where the natural lines fall uh, or where the unnatural lines where people have added in uh, separations here and there. I'm going to read from the CSB, but it's fairly similar to the ESV, um, starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be clear be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you, all of you, know the truth. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, 
and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for truth, Lord, that you are the God of all truth and Lord of all light by which we can see any truth. Lord, thank you for this day in particular, Lord, when we celebrate the greatest truth that has ever been made known. Lord, help me to uh, treat your word with care. Lord, help our ears and our hearts to receive it well. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look at the structure of that section, we're going to talk about two groups of people here. This, This passage divides itself nicely up into two parts. So we have those who have departed, and then we'll talk about those who remain. Um, Let's start by talking about those who have departed. And I want to start by clarifying some things that John is not talking about here. Okay? This is not about believers who have departed to move to another church, maybe another city. He's not saying, oh, these guys left our church. They weren't really part of our crew. Um, First of all, John's epistles most likely seem to be written to a group of churches anyway. So you leaving this town and going to another town doesn't qualify because you still would have been connected with all these people. Um, this is a bigger issue than that. Uh, we know in John, in, in verse, chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about Christ's sacrifice atoning not just for the sins of you, but for the sins of the whole world, meaning believers in other places too. So John has a really good grasp of of the church universal, right? Meaning not just, so our church is a local church, right? And we are part of the universal church or the global church, right? And that's all those who have come to know Jesus Christ. Make sense? Specifically what we call the church invisible. So there's a church visible, which means everybody who shows up at church on Sunday. And then there's the church invisible, which is everybody who's been saved. And there are people who may not be here at a church on Sunday who are saved. And there are people who may be saved who are not in the church on Sunday. And there may be people who are in a church who are not saved, right? So, so we're talking about Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, okay? Um, so yeah, it wouldn't make sense if he's like talking about, hey, those guys that went to the church down the street. Um, this is bigger than leaving a church body. This is leaving... Uh, Orthodox doctrine. This is leaving the truth about Jesus Christ. Uh, now I say that this is the elephant in the room, and I asked Peter about this. Like, do I talk about this? And he said, "You have to." So I have to. Um, we and this is also specifically talking about teachers in the church. Um, we've had a number of leaders in this church leave, right, for various reasons. Uh, we I'm here in part because David's not here teaching right? You guys were served well by David and Frankie for years. Um, We have Ronald leaving, right? We had Eric go to Midland. Um, That is not what this passage is talking about. I want to be really clear about that. Those men have served you very well. Their wives have served you very well. uh, And they did not abandon doctrine and run off after a false gospel and proclaim a false gospel. Uh, So I don't want you to look at this and think about that person who left church for some reason or another to go to another church, to go to another city, whatever it may have been. That is just not what's happening here. 
Uh, and you shouldn't use that phrase, they went out from us because they were not one of us in reference to any of those, those folks. Does that make sense, right? Uh, I might say it to David jokingly across a, a board game table, but I wouldn't actually ever genuinely mean it. Um, the other thing, this is not about believers who have lost their faith. And I want to take a little, little pivot quickly to the doctrine of what's either called the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. Um, I'm going to use Gruden's systematic theology uh, that I referenced earlier because I think he just gives the most succinct definition of the preserva- preser- sorry, perseverance of the saints, also known as the preservation. He says, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. This is a doctrine that uh, is one of, you hear like the five, uh, the five points of Calvinism, you may hear it called. I think it's got tremendous scriptural backing. Um, starting with this section that we're talking about here. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, right? So clearly, John's saying these weren't ever believers. These were not ever true disciples. Um, Jesus, in Matthew seven twenty three. then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Not like, oh, I forgot who you are, or I knew you, but you abandoned me. I never knew you. Um, Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So you see that foreknew, that's the first step. So that he would, also, he would be called the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So who fell out of the bucket the whole way? Who fell out of the bucket? Everybody who started here? ends up over here, right? They all end up together in the bucket. There's nobody who fell out. Nobody got lost along the way. Now, I I talk about preservation and perseverance. Preservation is when we view it from God's perspective. God preserves us. Perseverance is when we view it from our perspective. We persevere in the faith, and they are not mutually exclusive. Philippians 2.12b through 13 Work out your own salvation. That's perseverance. You persevere in the faith. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working preservation in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and God is working in you. Do y'all see that? Those both fit together. Okay. By the way, that, that passage in Romans eight twenty nine through 30 um, that's a classic example of Paul's style of writing. Do you see that? It's just this, then this, then this, then this, and this, and it's a straight line, and sometimes he gets so excited about it, he breaks out in a worship song at, at the end of it. You know how he does that, right? He has these big, like, ta-da, flourishes. Um, he's a linear writer. You may feel like John's repeating himself a lot. Do y'all feel that way when you read? Like, you just said this, like, a different way. John is weaving a knot, okay? He's, 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 weaving a knot. It's circular, but not in a bad way, right? I always joke that if you ever watch, I have a friend who can tie really good knots, and I'm just always impressed by them. Like, nobody else thinks this is as cool as I think it is, but I think it's super cool when you can tie a really good knot. John ties these really intricate knots of theology and really builds a sound doctrine 
not by stretching out a big scope. He focuses narrow and weaves it really well. What we are talking about here is the Antichrist. Now, how many of y'all got super excited when y'all saw Antichrist coming out? You're like, oh, we get to talk about the Antichrist. They talk about this on TBN. Um, uh, I remember growing up and thinking, like, everybody wanted to know who the Antichrist was. And it was this big thing, right? It's like this hooky-spooky thing. Who's the Antichrist? Is it like Gorbachev? Or is it like the president? Or is it the Pope? Or um, if, if you heard people talking about the Antichrist the way they talked about it, like when I was growing up in like the 80s and 90s, um, and then you read this, you'd be so confused. Like people trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Because uh, it's like he literally just says who it is. Uh, what makes this, in some ways, even easier to define Antichrist is that John's the only person in the Bible who uses this term. It's Like I said, he's kind of made up his own variable here to store this idea of this name of the Antichrist. Um, he used it once in Second John. He used it the rest of the times in First John. And his description of it could not be any clearer. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He is the liar who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He denies the Father and the Son. They embody a spirit that does not confess Jesus. So, you see a theme there, this denying of the Son. They are anti the Christ, right? Uh, The people that John is referencing here most likely fell into a philosophy known as docetism. Um... They're docetics, and it's, you may have heard the term Gnosticism, and they're really related. They're, the docetics were like, like the evolutionary ancestors of Gnostics. So they kind of, it was like, it was Gnosticism before Gnosticism was cool, I guess. Um, Gnosticism and docetism have this duality thing where they look at the world as evil and bad and corrupt and dirty, and the spiritual world as being good and pure and clean, right? So they've got this, this, this dichotomy between the two things. Uh, anything earthly and physical is gross. Anything spiritual is good. Which, by the way, interestingly enough, if we go back to the verses that Peter's going to teach on, hopefully in a couple weeks, about do not love the world, that almost seems like it would fit with that, right? Like, don't love the world, and we'll go, I'll leave it to Peter to explain why that's not the case. Um, I'm writing checks that Peter has to cash. I like that. Um, uh, in his commentary on this, Danny Aiken writes, uh, Dostism taught that, di- that a dichotomy existed between evil matter and good spirit, which had significant implications for Christology. Christology is just the study of Christ specifically. The Christ spirit, or son of the father, could not become contaminated with evil flesh. At worst, it would only assume it temporarily. At best, the Christ spirit would give an appearance of taking on the physical, but in reality would be an illusion or an apparition. So it's like this, yeah, an illusion, like a a magic trick where Christ appears to be God in the flesh, but he's not because the docetics would have said that's not possible. God can't take on flesh because flesh is foul and broken and vile, and God is spirit and pure, right? By the way, do you hear that there's some, there is some truth in there, right? We do have a fallen world, and we do have a holy God. And oftentimes, 
heresies come about because somebody sees something that, that doesn't mesh with the, what they're expecting in the Bible, and they, they pick at it and pull at it, and they force cracks in things or force lines where things don't need to be drawn because they're not comfortable with a bit of mystery. They're not comfortable with God being God and being bigger than them. Does that make sense, right? Um, by the way, this error is a, you see, you guys ever hear people do like analogies for the Trinity? The Trinity is like an egg. The Trinity is like water, right? The Trinity is like a man who's like a father, a son, and an uncle or whatever. Um, this is the water one, is that, uh, is that God, that water is either water, steam, or ice, right? Or ice, water, or steam. And maybe at best, it temporarily became water and then became ice again. It's kind of the idea here that they, does that make sense? God maybe temporarily became flesh and then went back. Um, And that's the heresy you're falling into if you use that analogy. By the way, life pro tip, all of your analogies for the Trinity are heretical. Every single one of them, you don't have a good one. Nobody's ever come up with one. Uh, They're all heretical because God's bigger than, than the box we try to put them in. So... If you ever catch your talking to your kids or grandkids, be like, God's kind of like this. The Trinity's kind of like this. Just stop. Stop. You're only going to just dive into heresy. It's not going to be good. Um, another thing that, that John says about these, these false teachers is what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. Um, the world listens to them because there's something attractive in the message they're teaching, right? There's something that they're saying that's, that's catching the ears of the people. Um, they probably are, are good speakers. They're probably winsome in their presentation. Um, they tickle the ears of the audience. Um, be very cautious when a person who professes to be a believer begins to preach a message that gains growing traction within the world outside the church, especially if the message doesn't draw them to the church. There is nothing wrong with being winsome and having people in the world hear you and be drawn to your message. The gospel at its best compels people to move towards God. But if you hear a voice that seems to continually move towards the world in the way it presents and never actually draws the world to the Father, that's an enormous red flag, right? And we see this happen over and over again. You see people who leave the church and then pull people with them, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, right? Um, And sometimes this doesn't always start out as malicious. Someone starts to present a message that the world likes, and then they like that approval, and they'll move in that direction, and they'll like that approval, and there's this cycle that begins to pull them. So they didn't never start out saying, I feel like being a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometimes this happens because of a process of kind of a reinforcement. Um, now, all it said, the Antichrist, does that seem pretty clear who the Antichrist is, right? Is it Gorbachev? No, he's dead. He's dead, right? I think he's dead, yeah. Um, it's like he's learned a long time ago. Uh, it's not the Pope. It's anyone who professes faith and professes a gospel that denies the deity of Christ. Simple enough? Yay, problem solved, mystery solved, great. Um, but let's focus on who this is really for. 
this passage, this whole book, is about those who remain faithful. That is the audience John is writing to. That is the goal. Um, I remember when I was younger, being afraid to read 1 John. Anybody ever get nervous about reading a Bible book? I would get nervous about reading 1 John because I felt like, oh, he's going to ask a bunch of questions about whether I'm a real Christian or not. And I just, I'm just not ready to go there. Um, that is not John's mission in writing this book. John is writing. Why does he say that he wrote these things? Do you remember? Why, do, why am I writing these things? So that you may know. Peter hasn't gotten there yet, but we'll get there. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not looking to shake anybody's faith. He's said a bunch of people leave the church and start calling their names. The last thing John wants to do is start shaking up people's faith, right? He wants these people to be firm in the foundation of salvation. Um, And he uses some ways to show them that they do have genuine faith. The first evidence he gives is that they have an anointing from the Holy One. Uh, who's the Holy One here? Did anybody know? It's Jesus. You have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, this is the kind of thing, I, I got so happy when I thought of this because I was like, Peter's going to love this. This is such a Peter thing to say. Anointing is for appointing. Okay? He would love that, wouldn't he? It's just the kind of cheesy thing Peter would say. Anointing is for an appointing. In other words, anointing isn't just like this vague idea of the Holy Spirit. Anointing always accompanies a mission. It always accompanies a job to be done. David gets anointed so he can. Anybody? Yeah, become king, right? Um, Why does Jesus anoint his disciples with the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why is Jesus anointed, first of all? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set, the free, set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was anointed in the Holy Spirit, remember at his baptism, right? For a mission. Acts 10, 37 through 38. You know the events that took place all, throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Christ is anointed for his mission, right? It's not this vague concept, oh, I have the Holy Spirit. You do, but there's a mission involved, right? Um, And I don't want that to be burdensome to you. The Osanax, Lord willing, will be in India soon. That's a big mission, right? Right? Um, Miss Jean is caring for Pastor Peter right now. That's a mission, right? Moms, grandmas, students, workers, you're on mission. Know what your mission is. Know what, it doesn't have to be big. I love, in Matthew 5, when Jesus is, is doing the parable of the, of the servants. I love the praise that the master gives the servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's been a big theme that I've been feeling in my life lately. Um, he could have said, great 
and powerful leader, right? Or awesome and impressive teacher. Um, if you said something's good, it's good. How's that ice cream? It's good. How's that, I think, in food? How's that taco? Good. Um, how'd he do? He did good. Good doesn't sound that impressive, right? It's, just, it's good. Faithful. Faithful doesn't sound that impressive, you know? It's kind of what we think of as the bare minimum. Faithful. And servanthood definitely doesn't sound impressive. But that's the mission that he had for those servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, if you are doing good and faithful work, you are serving God. Do you understand that? Good and faithful servant is praise from God. It is recognition of your efforts. It's a good thing. Now, the other thing the Holy Spirit does here, he helps them to know the truth, right? So Jesus, it says this is the anointing from the Holy One. We see that in John's other book, John 15, he writes this. When the counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So, I might actually get through one of my waters today. Um, We've been talking about these external evidences of faith, right? There's evidence to be seen if you love your neighbor. There's evidence to be seen if you keep God's commands. There's evidence to be seen if you testify to Christ. How many of y'all ever struggle with internal evidence? Like, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if my faith is genuine. I don't know if I'll persevere. I don't know if I really believe all this stuff. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit is sent to us specifically by Christ's word who sent him. So God, Christ sends, sends the Holy Spirit on this mission. We should probably listen to what his mission is. He will testify about me. The Holy Spirit's job is to testify to us about the genuineness of the coming of Christ and of our salvation. That's a good thing because we are weak and we are fallible and we are broken. Um, But God is faithful and his Holy Spirit is faithful uh, to testify to us when we listen to the truth of the gospel. And that's really good news. That's really good news. It's the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of the blind. He opened your eyes when you were blind the first time. And then when you, when you fall asleep or close them temporarily, he's there to open your eyes again to the truths of the gospel. And then the other thing that John says about those who are faithful is that they confess the Son. This is the, the doctrinal component, right? There is truth that defines whether or not you're a believer, right? There's something that you hold fast to. Specifically here, we are talking about, in contrast with the liar that we see talked about a little bit later, but um, it's the truth that Christ has come as God incarnate to live a perfect life, take on man's sin, die a brutal death, and rise again on the third day. John highlights over and over again, the deity of Christ. It's a big deal to him. Why? What's the occasion here, right? We think about why a book's being written. This book is being written 
because there are people who are questioning the deity of Christ, right? These people have left the church and are teaching something that's false. Christ, uh, John is, is drawing a hard line in the sand and saying, if you, can't, if you can't affirm the deity of Christ, we're done here. We can't do business together theologically. Over and over again. Jesus, I and the Father are one, right? That's the book of John, 1030. The one who has seen me has? The one who hates me also hates my Father, right? These, Christ and the Father are one. And if you can't do business with John on that bit of, of knowledge and that truth, then, then again, you're done there. That's where, that's where the conversation breaks down. You have to have a fully deified Christ. You have to have Christ who is the incarnate God himself, who's not temporarily putting on deity, who's not pretending to be a God. He is truly God. And if you don't have that, you don't have the gospel because he can't save you, right? Only God can take the full brunt of the wrath of God. No man, woman, child, can handle that, that weight of wrath. We can't bear it, but we need a representative. So no deity can represent man without being man. They can't stand in as tribute for us to appease the wrath of God. You need both of these things. They don't work independently. Does that make sense? Here's the good news. Jesus Christ is that man. Jesus Christ is that God. He is the God-man. He was able to bear our burden. He was able to carry our cross. He was able to face separation from God. He was able to bear the wrath of God. He was able to suffer our death. And only he was able to be resurrected on the third day. Only Christ could do that. And do you remember who saw that empty tomb? John. John comes with this perspective as an eyewitness. He's like, you can listen to those other teachers all you want. I was there. I ran. I beat Peter in a foot race, by the way. I ran. I got to the tomb first. I looked at the linens. I saw them. I, there's this tangibility to John's writing. I saw these folded up linens. Peter ran on in. For a variety of reasons, he was a little bit less cautious than John was in general, the whole ear hacking thing and whatnot. Um, but I saw that empty tomb. I beheld the empty tomb. I know. That's what he's saying. He's like, you can listen to them all you want, but I know. I know what I saw. I know what I've heard. I know what I've touched. I know that Jesus is my redeemer and that he's your redeemer because he's the only one who could do that job and he did it. Amen? Amen. So, so how do we apply this message? We're going to do it in like 15 minutes, right? What we do is we sing. We sing and we worship because we have been rescued from hell. We've been rescued from death. We've been rescued from damnation. We have been rescued by a great God who sacrificed everything just to come here 
and then suffered the worst wrath you could imagine, worse than you can imagine, and bore it all because he loved you. And why did he love you? Just because. And then he rose and he conquered death so that when we face death, we know that it's temporary. We know that we have a God who's conquered this, just like he conquered every other thing that we face. He's conquered death. So we have nothing to fear. And man, what do you do when you have nothing to fear and you've been rescued? You sing. It's what the Israelites did when they crossed the Red Sea. They just started singing because that looked rough. Right? That looked rough, but they were rescued. So they sang. So in about 15 minutes, after you guys chat and get your coffee and whatnot, we're going to go sing. And I hope that these truths ring in your soul on this day above any other day that you worship a risen Christ who died and was resurrected for your sins. That is good, good news, friends. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I mean... Thank you so cliche, but Lord, our language is limited and you're not. Lord, we are so, so grateful for the sacrifice that you made to save us from our sins. Lord, we didn't earn anything. We earned your wrath. We earned punishment and death, but you, Lord, you saved us. You came because of your great love with which you loved us and you rescued us. God, as we head downstairs to sing, Lord, make these truths real and fresh in our hearts. Lord, help us, Lord, to be, as the, as the old spiritual song says, how can I keep from singing, Lord, in this building? And then as we go forth the rest of the week, Lord, help us to, to pour out praise because we can't stop talking about how great you are and how amazing your love is for us and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.